All right, you guys ready to record? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. I think so. What uh what episode is this? Uh I don't the last one was 50, right? So what hold on, what's this? It's it's covered in dust. <sighs> God. Guys, it this says episode 49. But but didn't we didn't we already record episode 50? This can only mean one thing. <laughs> <laughs> episode 49 is back from the dead! <laughs> Fuck it. Wow. This is really dumb. <laughs> I, I, did, did, did the sound, did the sound help, help though? I thought maybe. I, it also doesn't make sense. Why am I blowing dust off a podcast episode? Yeah, I didn't, actually, I that's yeah, a really good point. That's a really good point. No, yeah, I hate okay. to tell you, Tom, but this didn't have the spooky factor that you were looking for. Okay, okay, hold on. Yeah. okay I have a few more. Let me try it. Um, hold on. Um, guys, I'm, I'm reading this here. And it says there hasn't been an episode 49 in over a hundred years. Oh, no. Ooh, spooky. What are we ever going to do? How will we survive with this? Oh, it's All a right, Halloween time. night. We, okay, we don't have to. Oh, gosh, we don't have spooky. to. You know, let's just, let's just get <laughs> on with this. You guys are stuck with me for the next two hours anyway. <sighs> Wait, what? No. 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 I can't. I don't want this. <laughs> and miscreants and welcome to <laughs> let's learn everything <laughs> the show where we learn anything and everything spooky <laughs> it's our halloween episode the tradition we started taking way too seriously since episode two <laughs> <laughs> because we we love a good theme today we'll be learning about a spooky science topic we'll be answering a scary science question and then we'll be learning about um uh, uh, Halloweeny miscellaneous top. I couldn't come up with another. Frightening, frightening mysterious, okay. mysterious miscellaneous fuck, topic. Fuck. <laughs> Stupid god. <laughs> mysterious miscellaneous topic. My name is Tom, and today's spooky science topic <laughs> is goosebumps. Oh, uh, like as in the like, children's like, book? No, as in no, I know all the the, the bumpies you get on your skinnies. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it the bumpies seems... you get in your skinnies. <laughs> the bumpies in the night. Uh, it seems pretty simple, but we're going to use it to explore a surprising amount of the science of fear. Ooh. <gasps> oh, fun. My name's Ella, and today's, what word did you use? Scary. Scary. <laughs> science question is, how were the pyramids built? Ooh, spooky. <laughs> Spooky, I guess. Spooky? That's Well, I mean, slave labor is spooky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but Tom, you're wrong, and we'll get to that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> My name's Caroline, and this episode's miscellaneous, mysterious miscellaneous <clears throat> yeah. topic. Yeah, there we go. Is the Loch Ness Monster and why we love cryptid creatures. Oh, yes! I love cryptids. There we go. <laughs> this has been on my hit list, but I was like, <gasps> one of them is going to get it before me. I know it. I'm so excited to talk about this. Before we dive too far in, we have got a little corrections corner. Do, do, do. Oh, Ooh, scary. so scary. <laughs> <laughs> A few episodes ago, 
I talked about if healing crystals actually do anything. Mm -hmm. And there was a sentiment shared in that episode, this you do you attitude that I took on because I didn't want to offend anyone who finds joy or benefits from engaging in crystals in any capacity within that community. By doing that, I completely ignored any of the real harm and damage caused by crystal farming and mining. Mm. So yeah, it has a massive impact on people. Most mining jobs are low or unpaid. The industry is incredibly exploitative mm. and the job is incredibly unsafe as well for many people. There's efforts from some gem sellers to try and differentiate between industrial mining and gemstone mining saying, oh, gemstone mining isn't actually that bad. It is. Don't <laughs> buy anything from websites that claim that it's not true mm. <laughs> there's also a lot of environmental impacts caused by crystal mining mm. with one study done at the university of basel in switzerland showing that the impact of mining gemstones includes things like water contamination landscape destruction soil erosion habitat loss and a whole range of other environmental damages and someone else pointed out that there are environmental issues with uh traditional medicine sometimes depending on the plant or animal being used you can buy crystals from sustainable sources that try to mitigate some of the harms that i've mentioned above and there's so much more that i could say on the topic mm, as mm, well mm. um so if you are going to buy crystals i think quite frankly that's the bare minimum that you should be attaining to do <laughs> by engaging in more sustainable sources that's what i want to leave this on i want to apologize for not highlighting a lot of these issues within the episode at the time i didn't I, I think, think it was in, in many the ways, scope of it but oh, yeah i think in many ways this is an additions corner more than yeah, a collection totally, corner absolutely yeah. yeah 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 i also want to say that you do you sentiment definitely should not have been shared and also just a huge thank you to everybody that emailed and messaged us on discord about this we oh, yeah. love that you highlighted it for this main topic i got a little petty i tried to outdo ella i didn't finish reading these but i did check out five books from the library <laughs> for this <laughs> nice um to sort of figure this out so that is not something is uh is not feasible thomas let's not get into unsustainable habits here tom sorry no no, no. so so the, the term goosebumps was coined in 1992 by stein et al um if you guys want an intro to this a night of the puppet people is really good um this is more <laughs> like a modern take but if you want like an older one there's uh -huh. uh, why i'm afraid of bees is really good um, they're very quick reads, so I, it was actually I was able to get through five pretty quickly. Um, oh, okay. I see. And then, oh, uh, I see. Oh, okay. Okay, I just got the joke. I'm so disappointed oh, no. in you, Tom. Oh, God. this is oh, meant fuck. to be the science oh, no. section, not the miscellaneous one. I know. Tom. I'm just I'm just realizing that now. <laughs> oh God! It says fiction. It says junior fiction on the spine. Oh my fucking God! Were you really proud of yourself for reading a whole book, there, Tom? <laughs> um, can we just jump to the question then? I really fucked up. I'm sorry, guys. I'm really sorry. Um, no, um, Goosebumps may seem like a very silly and also like very specific topic. And it wasn't actually going to be the topic at first. I was just looking into like the science of like fear and, and some of those spooky sciences. But I kept noticing actual scientific articles about goosebumps actual ones not you know, not this joke goosebumps was on my list of topics to cover at some was point really? yeah 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 yeah. well like again the science of fear yeah is one that has just been like have yeah, we all thought still, about this at some point yeah this is obviously there's a huge i was like i'm gonna do the science of fear and i was like no 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 no, no. <laughs> i gotta do, no. gotta do like a this is a way to like cut 
a subsection of it. Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can yeah. say that for another episode, but... This is the physiology of fear. Ooh. It kind of is. Yeah. Fun. So we'll get into that. But yeah, I was just looking into these fear articles and I kept finding scientific articles about goosebumps and it got me curious because I was like, what, what, what's going on here? So Caroline, how would you describe what goosebumps are? I'm trying to remember what I said earlier. The bumpies on your skinnies. There we go. There <laughs> <laughs> um it's where like it feels like is it all of your hair follicles standing on end mm. creating this really bumpy sensation i don't know why we call it goosebumps specifically I wonder if i can make them happen so Ooh. we can i just kind of shiver a bit just for us not for anybody no, else I can to look be able to see <laughs> i can look at them i can analyze what's going yeah. on <laughs> oh there they are ella how would you describe goosebumps i don't i have actually no idea that i would assume oh, they were okay. hair follicles oh. as well yeah, because I was always under the impression that goosebumps happened to try, like when we were more hairy beings, to make us like maybe look bigger or to be this more is very intimidating. Interesting, Caroline. We'll get um, to some of those thoughts in a second. Oh, interesting. Mm. Okay, cool. I'm gonna take a bigger step back. So, firstly, goosebumps more than just what happens on you is it, what it is is an involuntary reaction that you get to a number of strong emotions. Like the emotion of cold. Well, yes, that also. <laughs> obviously, like other things like wonder and awe, uh, but obviously the one we're going to be focusing on is a reaction to fear. Oh, Tom is in control of the fun sound effects, which makes me sad. <laughs> Actually, Caroline and Ella, let me know throughout this if you ever want uh, a, a thunder. Just like give me a signal or something. I'm more than happy to. Um, just very quickly while we're on this. Yeah. I don't think I've ever noticed that I've gotten goosebumps from any emotion. Genuinely. I think I've always... Not even... I've definitely noticed them when I've been what? in awe. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I don't think when I've been scared either. I've never I... noticed. I may that's... have, but they've never been noticeable I was going to say, I wonder me. if that's because, like, when you're afraid, you're not necessarily going like, oh my God, this is the most terrifying. Have I got goosebumps? Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Like, that's it's true. It's not something that you're thinking about I, in the well, moment. Well, I will say, um, Caroline and Ella, that... that you know, while there are a surprising amount of papers in terms of more than zero, there is definitely also like a lot of stuff that still needs to be done on this. Mm. Um, and it's also specifically linking, looking into fear and goosebumps. But at least we do know colloquially because of the fact that okay, the Goosebumps yeah. series is called Goosebumps. But but yeah, to your points, it's definitely more than this. Although, but we're going to use this as an excuse to talk about the fear side I of it. I see. I also wonder like, how ethical it is to try and study goosebumps <laughs> as like a fear well, response. Is this something you're going to oh, come we're gonna, on to? We're going to talk about some studies, Caroline. Oh, so, <laughs> so, you know, there are lots of ways to talk about fear. Uh, but I came across a tremendously long review I found from Rolf Adolf's titled The Biology of Fear. Ooh. It's extensive. Uh, and as they put it, quote, this review urges a functional concept of fear defining this emotion in terms of being caused by particular patterns of threat-related stimuli and in turn causing particular patterns of adaptive behaviors to avoid or cope with that threat. Mm. So, you know, just so we don't get lost in the like, what is fear? Is thinking of it as that sort of like reaction mm -hmm. to, to a threat. Okay. And, you know, these are things like increased heart rate, pupil dilation, increased adrenaline, you know, lots of things also primarily linked to the amygdala in the brain. But... One of the weirdest of those reactions is goosebumps. 
And that's because, unlike adrenaline, it doesn't seem to do anything. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. It feels like, I don't know what the, like, how goosebumps occur, but I imagine it's... In fear, they don't do anything, or in any situation, they don't do anything. It doesn't seem to have, at least also, not nearly as much as, like, adrenaline, like the other fear responses. Mm -hmm. So what actually happens to your body when you get goosebumps finally god here we are i'm waiting <laughs> genuinely in my head i'm like tell me tom tell me what they are tell me we'll, how we'll they do it. okay so <laughs> let's learn what goosebumps actually are uh or as scientists call it pilo erection or what other scientists call cutis anserin or what other oh. scientists call horripilation oh, no. <laughs> Um, no, but, uh, or as other scientists call it, the pilomotor reflex. Oh, there are wow. so many, it's just so funny. Um, I think because, you know, with a lot of the terminology, like there's different perspectives you can have of it. Like you can look at it from a like reaction perspective, or you can look at it from like a skin, uh, like dermal perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I will also say though, cause Caroline, you mentioned like, why is it called goosebumps? Yes. In many, many languages, most of the languages I saw, it is some variation of like, bird flesh that's so strange oh well that makes sense because when you pluck a bird they're really exactly bumpy oh, exactly okay. yeah that's why it's, it's like a raw chicken context that has been lost to time yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah 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 oh that's interesting but in the science world there's many names i'm going to stick with piloerection because that's the most consistent name i found for it piloerection is goosebumps yes but isn't piloerection when your hair stands on end Exactly, Ella. So ah, what's actually happening okay. is tiny muscles at the base of your hair follicles are contracting, which makes these bumps appear and also makes your hair stand on end. So we were right. Yes. Nice. Nice. Uh, and But what I love is that those are two separate tropes. It's like goosebumps and your hair standing on end, right? Yeah, or like the two yeah, yeah, like yeah. fear being scared tropes. Um, and on top of that, some scientists will also loop in the sensation of like chills oh, okay. to goosebumps and your hair standing on end. Um, as one review put it, other researchers differentiated between objective chills with erection and subjective chills without erection. Um, and, you know, it's important to have terminology to categorize your scientific analysis. But man, it makes you sound like the most annoying person in the world to be like, oh man, I just got objective chills. <laughs> <laughs> or for scientists to turn around mid-experiment and be like, hmm. I think those were subjective chills. Like, they're calling you a dirty liar in the middle of your study. <laughs> I will, but I will say, Caroline, that is a a a point of contention in some of these studies. People are, are ah. like, no, you have to actually measure the goosebumps. And some people are like, I don't know if self-reporting is enough necessarily. Oh, interesting. But uh, it's just so funny to me that like goosebumps hair standing on end and chills are all sort of the same phenomena. Mm. But the question remains, why do our bodies do this? And to help answer that question, I have another question for you all. Do other mammals get goosebumps? <gasps> this is what I was wondering, because when you said like, mm -hmm. oh, we can't think of a reason why mm -hmm. this happens. Like, have we looked at other animals that have more hair than yeah, us? Yeah, like when and a cat like, what gets impact scared it has? and they, yeah, or their hair just goes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I assume that must uh -huh. be a similar mechanism. Our listeners can't see. I'm doing the you guys are right dance. <laughs> yeah. uh, great intuitions. Um, so obviously, in fact, mammals seem to get 
much more productive goosebumps than we do. Right. In fact, this specific question was something of interest to Charles Darwin. Fan of the pod, Charles Darwin. Good friend of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you've only heard about him from the podcast, you would know him as that famous geologist and goosebump enthusiast. No, you would know him as that famous pigeon lover. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Also, just like... A little bit sexist sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Get all just, of these we, things. Yeah. That's what he's most known for. We absolutely <laughs> refuse to talk about <laughs> So as he wrote in The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, I have been assured by a veterinary surgeon that he has often seen the hair erected on horses and cattle on which he had operated and was again going to operate. Huh. I saw the hair on the Anubis baboon, which, when angered, bristled along the back from the neck to the loins, but not on the rump or other parts of the body. Now for a quick game of Things Charles Darwin Actually Said. The game show so consistent, we shouldn't be surprised anymore. (sighs) Here we are. Just, just, just what could the next sentence possibly be? (laughs) Oh, is it something sexist about how women have bumps on their bums as well? Or lack of? (laughs) Sometimes I like to sit in the bath with a bonnet on and whistle a jaunty tune. I mean, it's more that than the other. Uh, so here we go. These are literally the next sentences. <laughs> when angered bristling along the back from the neck to the loins, but not on the rump or other parts of the body. I took a stuffed snake to the monkey house and the hair on several of the species instantly became erect, especially on their tails. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> I feel like we went too crazy with our guesses this time around. Although like the fact that he just had access to a, st- a stuffed snake is it's, it's more very the, Darwin. The direct quote, I took a stuffed snake into the monkey house yeah. is just such a, <laughs> such a... That's the name of my autobiography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my stand-up <laughs> special, taking a stuffed snake to the monkey house. Um, nowadays, of course, we have much more well-studied theories of the benefits of animal piloerection. Can you all guess some? You guys already named two of them. To make yourself look bigger and more imposing. Be large. I love it when it happens on my cats and their tails go really big. It's it's very cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first one I I will mention before that is one big theory is thermoregulation. So just being able to shift your hair up or down. And this is also probably less to do with fear but more situations where you're cold, mm. right? Uh-huh. Which is why we get goosebumps when you're cold. Um, your body's trying to raise hair it doesn't have when you're cold, basically. Trying but failing to yeah, keep yeah, you yeah, warm, yeah. basically. Well, there's okay. a thing, Tommy. You said it doesn't seem like it has a purpose on us, which may be mm-hmm. true, but that's just like evolutionary biology. We had It exactly. had a purpose, and now it no longer has a purpose. Right, right. This is, of course, like a classic example of something that's vestigial. Um, but I will say, I think unlike the tailbone, like goosebumps aren't thought of as vestigial in the, mm. in the common sense. They're just thought of as like a thing you get when you're scared or cold. And I also think that unlike, you know, the appendix, it's not like a thing. It's, it's, a, it's an unconscious reaction that we still do vestigially. And like you both said, another theorized use is to appear bigger, which is why some people think cats will raise their fur when they're threatened. Um, But the most extreme example is not for raising fur, but for raising your quills when you're scared, as with porcupines. Okay, okay. so do quills grow 
from like basically hair follicles. They just are made of a different substance. Yeah, and it's a lot more complicated. They have like these mechanisms to detach, which is also like a whole other mm. thing. But oh, there wow. are. It, it seems to be a similar mechanism. Pyloerection. Yeah, which is like that's like. That's like really utilizing. That makes really a cool. lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with humans, it doesn't seem to serve any major function being the much less hairy apes that we are. Uh, it seems to be an entirely vestigial reaction, which is so funny to me as a sort of like failed self-defense reaction it's like a fire extinguisher that you've evolved to shoot glitter but you still like shoot it <laughs> like your body's like quick deploy the thing and it's like oh sweetie we haven't had that for years <laughs> we haven't had hair there for like for for thousands and thousands of years it, the reason it's still there to this extent is because it doesn't it also doesn't serve any disadvantage to us to have it exactly uh, yes yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a great point yeah but while we are the least hairy ape we are also certainly the most emotional apes and that is the other factor in this equation of fear. You know, even more interesting than the action of goosebumps is looking into what causes us to get them, looking not at the physiology of erection, but the psychology of erection. Fortunately, there's an excellent review titled The Psychological Study of Emotional Erection." Oh, perfect. Wonderful. <laughs> As they put it, quote, the psychological mechanisms of erection are not as well understood as the biological mechanisms. Like the psychological mechanisms of anything. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also one of those things where it's like, if we did do studies, sometimes we have to reevaluate them entirely. Mm. It's like, uh, I don't know if any of um, Freud's theories on goosebumps necessarily <laughs> would have been yeah. Yeah. contributions. <laughs> As they say, erection is often discussed in both scientific and non-scientific media as resulting or co-occurring with strong emotions such as awe, excitement, or fear. Didn't even finish the thunder because I, I couldn't commit to it. Uh, <laughs> stopped it halfway. Um, and this is how I stumbled into a den of some of the silliest and spookiest and most unpleasant genre of scientific experiments, which is basically doing random things to people to see how they react. Ooh, I'm kind of excited. Perfect. Is that this weird? is going to be so good. It's very... <laughs> my favorite example of this is from Gru et al. titled Chills in Different Sensory Domains. Uh, because as the title suggests, they attempt to see what kind of senses can cause chills or goosebumps, mm. uh, including acoustic, visual, tactile, and gustatory stimuli gustatory do you know what that means gust smell oh i was gonna say like literally getting a little gust of wind to come through and like no, see if that makes anything happen it's your sense of taste oh mm. okay and this study sort of combines taste and smell a little bit so as <laughs> this is a direct quote from the methodology the gustatory stimuli were presented after the main experiment. Participants were asked to drink 50 milliliters of grape juice in one swallow from an open glass. Thus, both smell and taste could influence chill reactions. After the grapefruit juice, the participants drank a bit of water. And then they were asked to drink 10 milliliters of lemon juice in one swallow. Were <laughs> they just shotting different juices, basically, to see what happened? Yeah, well, I guess, like, unpleasant ones. Yeah. To yeah. see if you... <laughs> okay, when you said... This is like making people scared. I thought it was going to be like they'd get them to drink an unidentified red liquid and they'd be like, that was blood. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, but I, I think it is. I, it's just like I had never thought about like, can you scare someone with taste kind of or like get, get that yeah. response with taste? It's a very fun question. Oh, I've just thought of when emotions give me chills and give, give me goosebumps. Yeah. It's disgust. Oh, Ooh. I, 
interesting. The, I, I was just a very visceral example would be like yeah. you're doing the dishes. The wet food that you can't see in the water makes me so disgusted that I get chills. That's interesting. I don't think I have that. I get that. It's funny you mentioned that, Ella. I, I didn't put it into the script, but I read in this one article that some, there are some people who think, because there's a Spanish word for an emotion called grima, which some people think is somewhere between fear and disgust. It's like a, ah. a weird quasi chills emotion. I would say it, pro it probably would sit there more. It's not like, yeah, yeah. ew, it's like, Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. the perfect noise for that's that. The, oh, uh, I love that's that. That's the umami of that emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but my favorite part about these studies is like rigorously and objectively describing some of the most bizarre stuff, like how they're like, and then they took 10 milliliters in one gulp of lemon juice. It's like, God, that sounds... So these are all verbatim items described for this paper. I did not alter any of these. Some of these stimuli include sound of dentist drill. Oh, valid. I respect yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Easy Lover by Phil Collins. What? What? I respect that less. Uh, uh, I think this is getting more, less the fear, more the like chills from like a good song. Okay, yeah. I don't know the song, so... She's an easy lover. That helps. Those are the lyrics. Um, <laughs> oh, this next Phil Collins in the air tonight. The drums, the drum do, do, solo do, in do, that. Do, do. That would, yeah, they should have done would that. Give me, that yeah. might give me chills. Uh, and if you don't know it, I'm sure fear also. Yeah. <laughs> um, this next one's so good. Screaming ape. Semicolon loop. Oh. That's an audio file. Oh on no. Loop. Oh <laughs> no. Right, right. That doesn't sound scary. That just sounds awful. It does, right? It's also yeah. it's one of the I love like a like a single line that like as a scientist you're like, oh God, that's yeah. like I know that's <laughs> when I see that on a list, I'm like, oh, I know what that means. Um a picture of the sunset. Aww. And head wizard TM. Uh. Which is one of those head massager things. Oh my god, like, oh, yeah. That <laughs> does it. Yeah. That does it every yeah. time. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. ASMR, ASMR does it for me. Yeah, me too. Also, I get the same sensation. So that is something I'm going to mention in a second. Is like another one of those things that's like, I wish we could study more of. And as you know, Ella, there's not a ton of ASMR studies, no. right? Famously. So there, I will say, to this study, there are a lot of caveats to talking about this. Like, Feelings of chills and goosebumps were self-reported rather than measured. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. also, it's obviously hard to make apples to apples comparisons between yeah. the head wizard and Phil Collins and <laughs> lemon juice, right? But I, I still think it raises interesting questions that are worth thinking about. Like, can y'all guess which sense, at least in this study, had the most instances of goosebumps? I honestly couldn't guess. Because mine would have been the head wizard. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, hands yeah. down. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't be shocked if it was the lemon juice, to be honest, of like having to quickly shot that. Yeah. So the top was tactile, thanks to the head wizard, TM. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one makes the most sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, again, also, it makes sense because like, it's like a physical action causing a physical yeah. response, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all, you know, what's physical, but like... It's, it's also, it's consistent yeah like, that's a good word. that's a yeah. great that's something that, that is like re reproducible between people whereas totally, all these totally. other emotional things are so different between people right it's like have you heard this song by phil collins um i will say images were weirdly the least likely to cause chills which makes uh, makes sense because like i don't know the last time i like saw a picture and maybe you know maybe something at a museum but 
it I find that interesting because we are such a visual species, right? Yeah. Like we do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like like all these metaphors we use for like understanding and vision. So I don't I, that just surprised me a little bit. But maybe it's more of a with images like this is my just off the wall yeah. guess here. Totally, totally. With images, unlike the other senses, mm -hmm. in order to like smell or taste or hear something, mm -hmm. at least loudly, you have to be near it. And so that oh, means whatever the if it's a threat or if it's like something even if it's something good, like you have to mm -hmm. be like yeah. more you have to be experiencing it a lot more mm -hmm, directly. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I think, you know, another quasi-theory I'm just spitting right now is could be like these senses that are more instantly connected to the lower brain stem and stuff like that. Like like uh, vision okay, yeah. is like a quote unquote higher order sense. So maybe That's like That's true. Like you have to interpret That's what where... you see. Yeah, yeah. Oh, see, I was gonna say the opposite of like if mm. you see something this obviously something. isn't always true. <laughs> no time. Um, but like, if you see something, like you Say you something. know that it's there. Whereas if something's touching you, or if you're I hearing it, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you know that it's there. Yeah, you, that is. I think mm. that is kind Whereas of what I was trying to say. Touching something, touching you, you're hearing something. Maybe I think yeah. all of these ideas yeah. actually come together, and the yeah. sense yeah. that yeah, images yeah, yeah. are ultimately something you have to think about mm. and interpret. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas everything else is like immediate. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think obviously this is all. Um... We're so smart. <laughs> We're so clever. <laughs> I was so proud of oh <laughs> um, But uh, aside from touch, the thing most likely to cause goosebumps was sounds. They also had a separate category for music, uh, but sound-based goosebumps happened the most. And also, again, like you, you, you respond to mention that, like because they mentioned the head massager, I really mm. want someone to look into like if this intersects with ASMR, right? With sound mm. being such a potent way to experience these uh, goosebumps. So yeah, all of this stuff needs research to get like bigger and better numbers so we can say this more confidently. But in some ways, I will say the effectiveness of sound should not be too surprising because there is an unpleasant sound that we can all almost universally associate with getting goosebumps. Can you guess what that is? Ella's doing the gesture. Nails on a chalkboard. Oh! Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, just, I just got goosebumps, actually. <laughs> just, yeah. Oh, gross. Oh. And to my amazement, I found multiple studies specifically looking at the phenomena of nails on a chalkboard no and how miserable it makes us feel. Oh, God, I just shuddered yeah, every time. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's funny because uh, you can't even hear it. You're just imagining just what exactly. it might be. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I found numerous papers on this, including... Scraping sounds and disgusting noises, which is not the worst Spotify playlist ever. It is a real paper from the <laughs> journal Applied Acoustics. As they describe it, quote, 34 horrible sounds have been examined in an internet-based psychoacoustic experiment. Uh, and I, I truly can't get over how much this sounds like the worst. Now that's what I call music. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like, all your favorite hits, including babies crying. Zoom cut that off so Good. we were protected. <laughs> Uh, listeners, I promise you, and I, I genuinely mean this, I will not play any of these samples. Very, <gasps> very good of you. Anyone who's anxious about hearing it, I promise I won't play any sounds of nails on a chalkboard, unlike some radio programs. <gasps> uh, no. Like, <laughs> no. One that rhymes with Shmem PR. Um, <gasps> I just have to read this because the transcript was so funny. Um, so the transcript of this broadcast reads, brace yourself. 
Here it is, parentheses, soundbite of fingernail scratching on chalkboard. Uh. <laughs> it goes on, ooh, just one more time, parentheses, soundbite of no! fingernail scratching on chalkboard. Oh my goodness, what? <laughs> Lovely. Who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> Uh, to get to the science here, there's two papers in particular I'll be talking about. The first paper is from 1986, titled Psychoacoustics of a Chilling Sound by Halpern, Blake, and Hillebrand. Uh, and the second paper is Psychoacoustics of Chalkboard Squeaking by Reuter and Ular, uh, which they say in their abstract is basically like a modern extension of that paper. Okay. And there's a chance you might have heard about that first paper. Ella, can you guess why? No. No. The reason why Elamite is because 20 years after publication, it won the 2006 Ig Nobel uh, Prize in Acoustics. Oh, <laughs> oh. oh fine. Fully accidentally stumbled on an Ig winner. Um, everyone mark that on your LLE bingo card. Yeah. yeah. Now, at first, you might think, like, what is there to look at with nails on a chalkboard? It's a loud, high-pitched sound that hurts my ears. Like, what's, what's interesting about that? Icky. Except... The interesting thing is sometimes it's neither loud nor high-pitched. Yeah. The thing that I think gives me shivers about yeah, it yeah. is not the sound, but the imagining the texture the of the nail. Of the it. sensation yeah, yeah, yeah. is the thing that bothers me. Very interesting. If only there was a follow-up experiment that looked into that. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, so hold on to that. But for now, what this first experiment did is, as they put it, we digitally synthesized versions of the sound of a sharp object scraping across a slate surface to determine whether spectral content or amplitude contour contributed to its obnoxious quality. Using magnitude estimation, listeners rated each synthesized sound's unpleasantness. Basically, they made variations of the chalkboard with certain frequencies removed. Oh, okay. And which still sounds so miserable, being like, it's like so a or b yeah. <laughs> it's like the worst like optometry visit you're oh like going God, through them is that better or worse it's the same <laughs> yeah yeah the same please stop the same <laughs> Ooh, play that again i wasn't quite sure and not only were the sounds played well below the like pain threshold of volume but the paper found quote High frequencies, contrary to intuition, are not necessary nor sufficient to elicit this unpleasant sensation. Mm. So it's not the like extreme high. It's not because it's like at the edge. It's not like a ringing in your ears, right? Like mm, some people mm -hmm. know that phenomena. It's different. So the second paper I mentioned dug into this a bit further, and they found that it's specifically the frequencies that are in the range between 2000 and 4000 hertz that cause that unpleasant feeling. And on the range, the spectrum of human hearing, that's just the upper 80% of pitch we can hear, not the upper 100%, like you might think. Interesting. It's okay, still high, yeah. but where that range does sit is close to the upper range of the pitch that humans speak at, which some people think may be what's happening here. Mm, I don't get it. So... As a paper covering the anatomy of the ear put it, quote, the structure of the pinna, the outer ear, may have evolved to enhance human sensitivity to sounds of a particular frequency, namely oh. around 3,000 hertz. Caroline's oh. gasping. It's, is it 
can I guess baby's why? Baby's crying. Yeah, baby's crying. Sorry, Caroline. I was like, I'm not letting you have it. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Well, well, so they say 3000 Hertz is, quote, the, the frequency of human voice, which is speculated to have favored the development of speech. So, ah. I mean, I think I think baby's crying might be a, a, a big factor in that, but it's in yeah. the bigger umbrella of like, that's where humans speak at. And so one theory about why it's so unpleasant isn't because it's like, the highest pitch thing we've ever heard it's more so that like it's like it's like how you can like resonate a wine glass it's just that that sound is at just a similar frequency to resonate uncomfortably in our ears i love the sound of the wine glass but imagine if Do your you? ear was the wine glass <laughs> it's like i don't know oh, how I you see. would like that yeah yeah um so the theory is just that like for whatever you know but i will say as with a lot of these kinds of questions especially when you're thinking of like evolutionary reasons we still don't know and i think there you know there could be a paper to come out in like five years that could present a stronger theory mm, and i hope mm -hmm. it does because it's just such a it, it's i love it's such an interesting but also like relatively easy thing to study right it, i feel like if you could come up with like the right Thing to like separate the audio or the right question to ask or the right way to present it yeah yeah you you just have to be kind of like devious enough to come up with the right experiment like for example that most recent paper which also added another condition to the experiment as they put it quote one half of the subjects knew the origin of the sounds the other half was told that they would hear some sounds taken from pieces of contemporary music <laughs> oh which is so funny to me. Firstly, it's very funny because it, it's just to be hearing that like grating sound and be like, ooh, yeah, mm, interesting. Mm, the wow, it's the, so the production modern. of this, it's so experimental. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is this Grimes? Oh, yeah. I think I know this no, one. No, it's yeah. like you, you, you're like 20, you're like 26, 27, you get into the room <laughs> and they're like, we're going to play you some young people music. Yeah. Some like some music yeah, yeah. kids are listening to and they play yeah. it. Yeah. And, and you're like, oh, God, no, I have past the age where I can't yeah. hear music anymore. <laughs> but the question is, which group listening to the same sound do you think rated it worse? I want to say back to what me and Ella were talking about earlier, yeah. that yeah. idea of not knowing what is causing like a sensation. So like not knowing what's touching you, not, know not knowing what you're hearing would then cause more of that. So I would guess not knowing the source okay. of it. I would guess knowing based on the fact that for me, it's the sense, the idea of the sensation of the sound rather than ah, the sound itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also wonder if anticipation has anything to do with it as well, you know? Isn't, I, mm. isn't this such like an interesting uh, question? Because you can see totally both sides of it, right? Yeah, Where it's yeah. Like, I think yeah. Both, to me, both sound like l doable, legitimate. Yeah. So you know? people who thought it was supposed to be music rated the sound as more pleasant. Yeah. Is that because they thought it was supposed to be music so they were like like that almost confirmation bias thing? But 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 isn't that so interesting cuz it's the same sound and yeah. also to your point Caroline, I initially thought like you'd be surprised uh -huh, to, uh -huh. to to and and like have a well and so we're going to talk about this in a second cuz like so what's even more interesting is that not only did their brains think that but their bodies thought that because in this case they weren't measuring goosebumps, but they were measuring galvanic skin response. And it also had a lower reaction when you were expecting music. What's galvanic skin response? It's electrical conductance of the skin, which can change from very slight responses from like your sweat glands and stuff like that. Mm. It's just like a way to measure an unconscious 
response in your body, right? That's okay. often associated with strong emotions like fear. Okay, yeah. But that's that's what's interesting because if you're talking about like body response, I would think I'd be like, oh, I, like that's surprising to me and I have a reaction to it. But even this unconscious response was different when they That's were expecting like, music? Especially when it's like, when you were talking about that range earlier, you would mm -hmm, think mm -hmm. like after establishing, oh, there's this range where it's the most like uncomfortable for us, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. like, that feels like a concrete thing that shouldn't yeah. then be impacted exactly. by this sort exactly. of thing. Exactly, yeah. And the fact that it is, is just really confusing. I'm confused about it. That makes me like <laughs> question Yep. like earlier that stuff like totally. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's not to say that all of this doesn't have something in it it's just that this, no but it's totally on, it's, it's ongoing like, right so yes. we're still answering question uh but yeah so when researchers said i'm going to play nails on a chalkboard right now your body well the, here's the other thing your body reacts worse even when it's prepped yeah to hear it i feel which like is also fine i don't know that that makes does that not make sense to you guys that makes, that makes sense, sense. Yeah. No, totally. yeah. you're like bracing you're for bracing it. for it it's yeah. like when you're watching a horror movie and you watch it without <gasps> the sound on and the, all the music cues that you know something's going to happen, a jump scare. It's yeah. a lot less scary when it's muted versus when the, you have the yes. music cues up into the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the jump scare. But it, it's funny you say bracing, Ella, because it's the opposite of bracing, basically, because <laughs> it doesn't lessen the impact. It's it sort makes of... it scarier because you know yeah, it's Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you don't, if you don't anticipate it, then... I don't know. That makes sense. Yeah. It just makes yeah, sense yeah. to me. No, no, totally. It, and well, and then it raises the question of is anticipation like a big factor in fear, yeah. right? Or and also to your point about like imagination, like when you combine the senses, maybe it's more fearful because again, mm. like to your point, you're imagining it now. And so you have that additional sense along with hearing it, right? So it's like a fuller experience. I just think this opens like a whole can of worms about fear, like maybe. It's about anticipation. Maybe there are social factors about what we find mm, scary mm -hmm. and how our brains can make our bodies feel more scared. Yeah. There is just like a lot more scary science to be studied for future episodes. But I want to just end with one last competing theory about why Ooh. nails on a chalkboard give us goosebumps. It's a theory proposed in that first chalkboard paper from 1986. It's a theory I don't personally think is like very strong, but I can't deny it makes the spookiest last paragraph of a paper I've ever read. <laughs> As the researchers put it, quote, the automatic, almost visceral reaction to this sound makes us wonder whether it mimics some naturally occurring innately averse event. They go on to, to compare it to the sounds of like warning calls from monkeys. But then they say... It's the cry of a cryptid. <gasps> Some kind Ooh. of cryptid. As another possibility, the signal may be similar to the vocalizations of some predator. Regardless of this auditory event's original functional significance, the human brain obviously still registers a strong vestigial response to this chilling sound. <gasps> so dumb. Dun, dun, dun. Like, I mean, it's not so dumb, but it's like, it is a pretty... Pretty, uh, it's, 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 it's slapping like its straws toeing around like i like it's scary theory. it's a scary <laughs> yeah. idea it kind of makes yeah. me think of um it's some real have creepy you ever listened to, stuff like, uh -huh. this, yeah the sound of a uh, an air raid siren oh yeah 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 like that gives me chills yeah mm -hmm. and that's just a psychology of yeah yeah totally something that i've never even experienced but i'm like yeah you know there's something there there's something yeah. there 
It's, it is spooky. Any horror movie writers out there, that's your next idea is you start in like the ancient wilderness and then like it's it's like a prehistoric man like running from fear. It's like, what are they running from? And then you just hear and the nails on a chalkboard. And it's a oh! giant chalkboard <laughs> running, <laughs> scratching itself. Yeah, it's a chalkboard with its own arm, Arms. like an anglerfish <laughs> reaching out to They call the, um, it's called the SCP. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's one of those monsters. It's one of those. Like, yeah. Oh, that was fun. Amazing. You know what's good about that isn't it's the sitting down and being like, this is something you all know. And yeah, you can all yeah, be like, yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh. And the fact that Caroline and I had such different responses to the same thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Is really interesting. And 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 they're both legitimate. And it's like, so and in that case, I think that that shows how hard this is to study. Because totally. I honestly right? don't think yeah. there is there is gonna be one simple you know, yeah. answer to this. Yeah. It's going to be yeah. lots of different factors. And and like you say, nurture will affect what yeah. aspects of nature come out there. Yeah. It's very interesting. But I think there's some, I mean, the cleverness of just like, this is going to be music versus this is going to be chalkboard is so, it's just like literally a sentence you say before the experiment. But if you, if you can come up with that, I think there are some, some really cool. And it's such a, such a simple thing that fully pulls into question like all of the previous research that was done as well and like why it's so totally, important totally. to reevaluate stuff like this that's really interesting to your point yeah Ella, because we all know it it's like we all have our our, our preconceptions mm. of it so it is very like a fun and also yeah this is something you could do like an experiment in like undergrad or like even in high school is just yeah. like might not be liked for it but <laughs> this entire time we've been talking about it I've been shivering I've been almost constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had one real big shiver in the middle of it, and then I got it out of my system. And that was and just was a bad okay, joke. But it was like, yeah. <laughs> that was just the chilling realization that you had committed to a podcast with me. <laughs> <laughs> Two years in, like, oh, God. Isn't it a great day to be queer and in space? Is that where we are right now? We're in space. Are we, are we floating around? Whoa. Sorry, Tommy. No, not no. you. <laughs> You're right. As glad as I am that you guys brought me up here, I don't actually know much about the queer experience in space and flight. Don't worry, Tom. Although you'll never be queer in space, you can learn all about it on the new audio miniseries, A Queer History of Aerospace from the Museum of Flight, which is premiering on October 24th. I've actually heard of the Museum of Flight. It's in Seattle, which I love dearly. And it's also one of the biggest non-profit air and space museums in the world. And the museum is diving into the way the LGBTQ community has shaped aviation and space exploration. And the way the industry has impacted those communities in their new podcast series. Their ultimate goal is to encourage people who have been left off museum walls to share their own histories so that together we can start telling the whole story. Yeah, the aerospace industry is undoubtedly still dominated by straight white men. Mm-hmm. And, and it's often their stories we hear when we learn about the amazing stuff in space and air travel. Mm. I've certainly noticed that in my research of topics into space for the podcast. It's something that continues to come up and I'm really so psyched for this. Yeah, definitely. Real talk, when when we heard that we were going to be doing this ad, we were all so excited. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because it really is just, it's it's, it's a way for folks to learn about a thing that we all care about. Right, and as somebody who's like been in the museum circuit for a little while, I, there are certain museums in London that 
do very much continue to tell the same stories of the same yeah, groups of it's people. always the same. So it is really, really fantastic to see a museum like this doing that. Yeah, it's good to know that the museum is really putting effort into that because... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although we don't know their stories, people of colour, women, LGBTQ plus people have always been in and been impacted by the aerospace industry. Yeah, um, totally. We just don't yeah, hear yeah, their yeah. stories very often. And now we can start with a queer history of aerospace. You can listen at museumofflight.org slash podcast or search The Flight Deck on your favorite podcatcher. New episodes every Tuesday beginning October 24th. It's the final week of Co-Optober. I'm Kira Gowan, Ad Operations Specialist, and I'm here with... Daniel Barwella, Technology and Data Specialist. To cap off National Co-Op Month, we're sharing how worker-owned co-ops can benefit their communities. Read about it in our newsletter or on social media at MaxFunHQ. We're also trying to do our part. We're volunteering at our local food bank this week, and we encourage you to volunteer in your area, too. On Friday, we're announcing the donation that you helped raise in the post-Max Fun Drive sticker sale, going to five food banks across the U.S. And we want to make sure you know that this is your last chance to get our limited edition Co-op Launch Crew merch. Grab a pin, hat, shirt, or hoodie before they disappear at the end of the month. Details on merch, resources for volunteering, and all things Co-Optober can be found at MaximumFun.org slash Co-Optober. That's C-O-O-P-T-O-B-E-R. Thank you so much for your support and have a great Co-Optober. Despite all the study and examination by scientists, exactly how the pyramid was built remains a mystery. The technology to do so in that era simply didn't exist according to historical teachings. It shouldn't have been possible to construct the pyramids when they were built. That is a quote from a Medium article by someone called Jason Norton. In the article, he goes on to imply that there was mysterious helicopter-like technology used based on a high... <laughs> Sorry. Based on a hieroglyph that looks kind Not of like, like a, a helicopter. Wow. Oh, oh a my hieroglyph God. that wow. looks kind of like a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Really? So it basically implies that a more advanced civilization must have helped them. I'm sorry, just because he doesn't have the imagination or the know-how on how to lift a rock? Like, are you fucking... He's like, Helicop- oh, I don't know I'm how to so... do it, so it must have been a helicopter. It's also no. it's just so America-coded to be right. like... Fuck it, so it looks like a Blackhawk. It's gotta it be... Been? It's like, <laughs> it's so unimaginative to be like, helicopters were inevitable. My spooky and mysterious cold open is being ruined right now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, you're no, you're right, and also the vaccines, Ella. Okay. <laughs> he goes on to say, "When I look at the glyph, to me, it seems clear that the artist was carving shapes that history would have taught us the people of that time would have no frame of reference for. The tech wasn't there in that era, or was it?" Spooky Tom, the sound. Do the sound. Oh, uh, oh my God. Uh, uh, <laughs> hold on. Wait. Okay, do you want? I'll do the build up. Okay, ready? Say that again. Here we go. The tech wasn't there in that era. Or was it? (gasps) (laughs) I'm so glad I made that. I was like, am I going to get use out of this? There you go. Today's (sighs) question is, how were the pyramids built? But first, let's ramp up the tension by talking about the great structures themselves. Do you know how many pyramids there are in Egypt? No. Three? 
Is it three? I, I'm thinking more, like 10? Wow. I know at least one. There are 118. <laughs> oh my God. Well, fuck me. Yeah. Wow. What? Yep, there are 118. They range from seven meters tall, so... You know, not that tall. So not made by a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> still made by a drone. Yeah, made by yeah, a RC I drone. I mean, it's uh -huh. still pretty. It's still pretty tall. Still tall. It's like taller than me. Yeah. Yeah. humans, yeah. you know. That means it must have been the giant dog people that built it <laughs> instead, yeah. right? Yeah. And they go to 146 meters tall, which is... Wow. Just a little bit taller than me. Yeah, just a touch. <laughs> <laughs> Frame of reference, they were built between the 3rd and 18th ancient Egyptian dynasties. So that's 2000. 1686 BC to 1292 BC. Wow. Pretty old. Wow, okay. That's like the, the edge of, of written history. Yeah. That we that we know of. The the most iconic wow. are the ones that you were thinking of, Tom. The three lined up pyramids. Okay, okay. They're on the Giza Plateau. Those are the pyramids of the pharaohs Khufu, Khafre, and Menkaru. And Akhet Khufu, or the Great Pyramid, is the largest one. And that's 146 meters tall, or 481 feet. And it was built to be the tomb of Pharaoh Khufu, who reigned from about 2633 BC to 2605 BC. We're going to be saying a lot of BCs. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty staggering work of ancient architecture. It incorporates around 2.3 million stone blocks. And it also has this very intricate Whoa. network of chambers and passages within. It's not just a, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big stone thing. There's stuff inside. So how was this masterwork built? And in order to fulfill our Halloween quota, <laughs> I'm going to make you say the thing. Say the thing. Say the thing, guys. Who built the pyramids? Say the thing. Do it. Ancient aliens. aliens. You're both racist. You're racist. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. And now let me <sighs> explain to you why. Please. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, when do you think that this kind of ancient aliens building the pyramids thing oh, started? That's a very good that's question. That's a really good question. Is it like around a, a time where trying to make ancient Egypt seem less impressive than it is? Like trying mm. to... Right, right. I'm thinking like... With the rise of Egyptology and like it's like in the 1900s and, and early... I mean, you're right oh, that it has yeah. to have been after when archaeology and Egyptology became mm. a yeah. thing, right? Well, Caroline, you know who came up with the ancient alien theory, right? No. Ancient aliens. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. That was so scary. My headphones so fell off. Oh it kind goodness. of starts it starts rolling in the late 19th century with the rise of a very specific kind of media that came around this time. Sci-fi? Yeah. Science fiction. Oh, right. You need aliens oh, okay. to, to have ancient yeah. aliens. Oh my Doi. Goodness, of course. Of yeah. course. So in 1897, wow. H.G. Wells published War of the Worlds, and this really uh. got the ball rolling on aliens as a concept, right? So the year later, wow. Garrett P. Service released something called Edison's Conquest of Mars, where in the book it's discovered that the ancient Egyptians were actually Martians. So not that they had aliens come and help them, but that they were aliens. <sighs> right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty. It's all. It's pretty whimsical. Like it's just supposed to be like yeah. a kind of whims whimsical sci-fi thing. And Without this exact like, if it isn't clear, like as people who make science videos on TikTok, this is exhausting to to, to like like yeah. we have heard yeah. so yeah, many yeah, very yeah. seen so many variations of this but like 
if we remove that context at that time, it's like, that is like a kind of fun thing to think about. Like what if ancient people are, it's a, you know, it's, it's like a kind of, it's a, it's a yeah, fun idea. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, yeah, without yeah. all of the connotations that come with modern theorizing of yeah, this. And, and that's the right? thing. This right, is right. really a modern thing because it was in 1968 when Eric von Daniken published a book called Chariots of the Gods, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past, which really popularized the idea that it was alien visitors. Oh mistaken as gods which shaped egyptian religion culture and technology and from there the kind of conspiracy grows right (sighs) so in a quote for ifl science dr nikki nielsen a senior lecturer in egyptology at the university of manchester said about these kind of conspiracy theories i think that fundamentally it's because part of us really has a hard time believing that you would go to that amount of trouble just to bury one guy. I think the part of the human mind goes, yeah, there's got to be a better explanation than that. And whilst I do believe that that's certainly part of it, I think when Nielsen said this, he wasn't aware of two things. One, Von Daniken is racist. Right, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. straight up. Um, in a later blog post, he posed kind of questions and beliefs like, quote, was the black race a failure and did the extraterrestrials change the genetic <gasps> code by gene surgery and then program a white or a oh. yellow race? Oh, oh my God! Bloody <laughs> <Yeah>. hell! <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> That's so dumb. Also, it's just so right. fucking stupid. Yeah, it seems pretty clear from I'm this. I'm just asking questions. Yes, yeah, questions. Oh, grim. I, you know, it seems pretty clear that his alien theories oh. are influenced by his racial beliefs. Yeah, 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 yeah. The thing is, not all peoples are now, and that's something we'll talk about too, but the second thing Nielsen didn't think about when they said it was just, you know, I can't imagine doing that, is although not all conspiracy theories, most conspiracy theories about ancient structures are built by people who were not white. Yeah. The pyramids in Egypt, the Mayan temples across Central America, the Easter Island heads, uh, there's an Iron Iron Age village in Zimbabwe that gets a lot of this um, conspiracy theory and so on. There's this kind of persistent thinking behind all of this that only white Europeans could ever achieve grand architectural feats, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And these beliefs are strengthened by seemingly fun and quirky conspiracies to these days, like the History Channel program, Ancient Aliens. Yes, yeah. uh, Which questions whether humans could have made these ancient structures, and which Von Daniken is a listed producer on. Oh, really? (gasps) Yeah. That feels bad. Yeah. (laughs) I I should say in fairness, you know, many Egyptologists and Egyptians themselves do kind of view shows like this, which lean into the bizarre and fantastical as escapism. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that is true. Enjoying that kind of content doesn't immediately make you racist. Yeah. But there is always something deeper to think about here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for some people, it is like a pipeline. Yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. The conspiracy theory pipeline is real. Um, This is a quote from Professor Robert Cargill. Cargill actually appeared as a counterbalance on ancient aliens. Ah. So he said, there is an underlying ethnic bias against people of color that many white people don't even recognize when the magnificent achievements of the ancient world are attributed to aliens instead of to their rightful creators. Attributing the achievements to the forerunners of darker skinned peoples to aliens because you believe they couldn't have possibly done it themselves might be perceived as racist to people of color who descend from these ancient innovators. That's pretty much where I'm leaving yep. that bit because we. That's it. Yeah. We fill. We filled our spooky alien Halloween quota and established <laughs> that Tom and Amazing. Caroline are racist, which is oh. the scariest part of all. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can now get down off my soapbox. 
and we can answer the question. <gasps> Finally, like, yes. I, I know. I think I know some aspects of it, but I am very curious to like Genuinely, actually yeah. know the the whole the whole shebang. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because despite the quote I opened with, uh, it's not a mystery how the pyramids were built, and they did have the technology to do it. Because, and this is important to remember, although humans have changed a lot socially over the past. 4,500 years, we have not changed very much physically. There is nothing yeah. that suggests that ancient humans would not have the same capacity to innovate as humans right now. Yeah, totally. So, there you go. Guys, how did ancient Egyptians build the pyramids? <clears throat> I haven't researched it. I was just hoping you would know. Um, with, like, a whole bunch of, like, lever systems to help, like, with, like, the force so that could have to push down a little bit less to push the brick up a bit. had some palm fronds that you could spin yeah. really fast, you could make a helicopter device. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> If you get lots of people like with like a, a bit of rope that goes woo and then you all pull it, it'll pull the, the big rock up. You're talking about like a lever pulley system, like a like I'm still talking about levers, yes. Is um like rolling stuff on other stuff? Is that one? Rolling stuff on other stuff. If you had like like uh, maybe I'm mixing this up with like Stonehenge or something like that, but if you had like ten like wooden dowels you could oh like 10 logs and you push it up and then you like move the logs in front to like yeah, yeah, keep yeah, pushing up like... yeah, oh yeah, that's yeah. interesting what about water also could be a way Ooh, to like move stuff yeah. across I'd... if you put water on the ground maybe it can slick it so you can like move it across oh, surfaces okay. and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. you are actually right tom you're right yes. oh my god in one aspect Caroline, you are okay. so wrong. Oh, oh, perfect. Amazing. It's not your fault, though, Pulleys because... Pulleys weren't invented until the 1800s, Caroline. <laughs> well, the, the pulley lever system, as we know it, with ropes, actually wasn't used until much later. Oh, really? Or, yeah. Actually, or may, it may have been used in other parts of the world, but it wasn't used in ancient Egypt because they didn't have the right materials. Interesting. Mm, mm, mm. Let's take a step back. What kind of tools might they have used? I, they have to make Ham the brick. Hammers and so chisels. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, horses or animals to move things. They didn't use that many animals. No? Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Archaeological evidence of finding, you know, rem remnants of these materials and seeing, we see marks left on the stone that was worked. Yeah. Mm. And wall paintings that they would have used tools very similar to what we used in construction today, just more rudimentary and more labor intensive. Yeah. Sure. So right. you had copper tools like chisels and hammers for carving blocks. We also know that they would have used plumb bobs in planning and construction. Oh, no What's way. What's a Hell plumb? Yeah. Plum bob. What? I was gonna say a spirit level as a joke, but like oh, actually, yeah. So we know that from oh. wall paintings that they would have used plum bobs. Do you, you want to explain what a plum bob is, Tom? Yeah, we learned briefly mentioned it on the um the sea level question about oh. how we measure height and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's it's basically just like a, a weight on a string, right? Yeah, with a pointed tip at the end, and that helps you measure angles and levels it's it's oh. like you say it's a spirit level but it's specifically for vertical surfaces so it's, yeah. it helps you make sure something is vertical doy yeah so they basically just use rudimentary versions of what we use today it was just took a lot longer mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. don't underestimate what time can do ultimately uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah truly yeah. truly i think something that always comes up when attributing the pyramids to aliens is how could they move these insanely heavy five thousand pound usually limestone blocks. Wow. wow. That is a lot. Either up the pyramid or simply from the resources are found to the construction site, which is often many, many miles yeah, away. Yeah. Do you have any wow. ideas? Wow. My brain just keeps sticking at 
levers right now because I know yeah, that's no, what I that's would think of. When I was researching you know? this, I assumed rope pulley systems to yeah, lift weight. Yeah, yeah like, like, like those mechanical tricks that let you like exert less force over more time to do more work. Like the gears on a bike, right? So like ramp systems. Ramps. Ooh, ramps. There that was go. it. That is mostly yeah. it. It's mostly a lot oh. of ramps. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> duh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Huh. Huh. So Perfect. there have been like many smaller pieces of archaeological ev evidence pointing towards the use of ramps and sleds to move stone right. blocks over the past okay. century. So rather yeah. than logs. There, well, because there was the, um, what's it? They found the, there's diagrams of like the hawk god, right? And like all the ramps that he would skate on, Tony Hawk, where he's like skating on the oh ramps, and then gosh. that's how he. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, Jesus Christ! That was I was a bad like really like, job. oh, this is interesting. I was not something I did fine, and then it was like, <laughs> ruining it. So yeah, they Tom, not so much these like rolling logs you're thinking of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Wood is somewhat of a premium in. Uh, okay, that's this very area. interesting. There, yeah. there were trees and stuff for them to use but mostly they would have used minimal amounts right here um right. so they ha would have had just two basically planks or blocks underneath of a wood uh -huh. uh, act as a sled oh okay oh. And, and you see this we see this in wall paintings all the time it's everywhere huh. when they're depicting building the pyramids and other structures but it was actually in 2018 that a team found a very well preserved no way 4,500 year old ramp in an alabaster quarry <gasps> No wow. way. And they think from dating, it would have been used during the building of the Great Pyramid specifically. Oh my goodness. That's so cool to find it inside of the, yeah. it's like, uh, like uh, it's so funny to think of back then, the, the person who left the ramp behind inside. Like they were like, all right, we cleared everything out, right? It's like, yep, yep. And then, then one guy like leaves, he's like, I don't want to mention it because then we're going to have to, and we're going to have to get a ramp to get this ramp. It's going to be a whole <laughs> fucking thing. Yeah, we're, close it, close it. We're good. We got it. <laughs> so, Basically, I, I want to explain how the ramp works because it, it's, it's simple, but it's ingenious. So you have this ramp with stairs on either side and then up the stairs, it's you've got to have post holes, which would have had like strong wooden posts in them all up the ramp. Okay, yeah. The, uh, the basic idea is that you have this great stone block and very simple sled. It's got loads of rope tied around it and many people are pulling uh -huh. the block up the ramp, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The thing that allows them to make the ramp steeper is what happens is when the person in front reaches a wooden post they can uh -huh. throw their rope around the post oh, and they can pull okay. down oh, that's like a pulley yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah in so many ways yeah so because they are still ahead of the block on the ramp it pulls the block up but the burden of holding the block would have been massively reduced it becomes easier yeah 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 and which meant they could have steeper ramps and because there are posts oh, all the way up wow. here where every person reaching the next part would be able to hook on and you'd continue like that. That's so, that's That's, really that's actually very yeah. interesting, yeah. I was like, well, how can you make a ramp any more complex? And it's like, you know, like one person, but like when you really put together like a lot of people, you can get like a lot of collective force. Yeah. To oh, like yeah. Right? Stuff and stuff like that. Absolutely. And there were a lot of people doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can also, you start to see very quickly how they made such big structures this way, right? Like if well, that all Well, and also, because like, if you can get up one block, then you can get up 
in theory, any number, right? Because right. then you just go do another As far as your resources yeah. will take you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's still worth saying that this would have been very difficult and time consuming. I'm sure. How long did the Great Pyramids take? Uh, the Great Pyramid specifically, Akek Khufu, it was 30 years, they think. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's also like uh, knowing the fact that there are more than just three also makes it make a lot more sense, right? Where it's like they, they didn't start with the big three, I assume. they There's lots of, you know, practice and trial and error and like, yeah, this is a thing they've done. Yeah, well, you're right? exactly right, Tom. And I'll talk about that too. Yay. <gasps> so Amazing. there's also uh, the point with this ramp system is they wouldn't have been able to do this everywhere, like have these posts everywhere. And it wouldn't have worked on, wouldn't work on flat ground, but they were moving things across flat ground. Mm. So there must have been more to it. And it turns out there was, in fact, a glaring clue that had been ignored for over a century. Oh, really? So in the tomb of Dejehu Tihotep, there is a wall painting which was discovered in the late 1800s. It shows about mm -hmm. 100 workers pulling a giant statue on a sled. And on the front of the sled, one worker pouring water on the sand <gasps> in front of the sled. Shut Let's up. Go. For no way. Well done, Tom. <laughs> I feel like I must have heard this somewhere, but I'm surprised I retained it. I'm so impressed. I'm going to send you this picture. Oh my God, yeah. Wow, it's a lot of people in this image. I counted, it's about 100 in front. Wow. Oh my God. Wow, okay, so it's that scale of people. There is just one guy tipping some water over the oh, front yeah. of the sledge He's at, at, yeah. at, the, at the front of the sledge, but behind everyone else who's pulling. Yeah, He's just, yeah, he yeah, just yeah. pouring out a bucket of water. Yeah, and so the idea here is that, well, for many years, Egyptologists thought this was part of like a purification ritual. <laughs> That's interesting. But basically in 2014, one team showed that if you wet desert sand, the specific sand around the area that the blocks would have been made in front of a weighted sled, it just glides much more easily because the sand doesn't heap up in front of the sled oh, and friction okay. is reduced. Oh, right. That's so clever. So the force they needed to pull the sled could be reduced by up to 50% with the right amount of water. Wow. Oh. We can't know that they did that, but it seems likely. Yeah. Yeah. I did, I also, I gotta say, I didn't realize it was this scale of people. This is a ton. Of, like, I was picturing maybe like 10, 20. This is like the combined effort of maybe 100 people? Well, that's because this is like a giant statue they're pulling in this image. Sure, but sure. there are a lot of other things, I think, well, that we know and we don't necessarily know that would have marginally increased the moving of blocks until it would have been very feasible uh -huh. to do it with just a few dozen people. Yeah. Oh, wow. So in, in a 2022 tweet, Egyptologist Gregory Maraud put a lot of different facets of our understanding of how ancient Egyptians moved blocks together, including sleds, slideways, and water to lubricate. And he showed that just 20 people could move a two-ton limestone block. <gasps> wow. okay, there's, a, there's the video. <gasps> They're moving it so quickly as well. Mm. Two tons. Yeah, no, that's a much faster pace than I would. Oh, oh, uh -huh. wow! They're actually they're book when they're running, they're booking it. They're running with it. Yeah, <laughs> they're running with the block. That's mad. That's also like another factor is like momentum and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, like it's it's yeah. it's. Gosh, there's so many different facets to how this could have been improved. The movement could have been improved and made easier. Yeah, I also really like like modern people and these are many yeah, modern totally. Egyptians to bringing all them together to demonstrate like how it could be done. I think that's super cool. Yeah, yeah we have guys in polo shirts doing it and it's like oh so we could do this <laughs> so there is an one other thing that conspiracy theories always bring up which we haven't addressed 
how did they move blocks miles from quarries to the pyramids? It's really, it's Just very simple. Take your time, take a rest, set up camp. No, what runs through Egypt? The river, the river Nile. It's the yeah. Nile. Just guys. use that. Just put it on a boat. They, they do all the things that they were doing on the sand to get it onto a boat and then move the boat. Like, it's so easy peasy. They moved them on boats down the Nile. It was that simple. Boats existed then, <gasps> you know? <Wow. laughs> Wall painting shows they use boats. There are yeah. remnants of ancient harbours where they would have stored <gasps> those boats. That's and so wooden cool. ship parts that's have been amazing. found in these harbours as well. Whoa, that's so cool. That's really cool. Can you imagine? There was even recent research which looked at 61 plants along a floodplain and it showed that the water level of the Nile, unsurprisingly, would have changed over the past 8,000 years. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And there's a now defunct arm of the Nile called the Khufu branch, which goes past the Giza pyramid complex really close. And its water levels would have been much higher during the construction yeah, yeah, of the Great yeah. Pyramid, which is probably why the pyramid is there specifically, wow. because yeah. it would have been yeah, easy so to transport sense. materials directly to, oh. to it. But then, but then with time, it just like disappears and then it looks like there's nothing there. Wow. Yeah. And this brings me to the final technical aspect of pyramid building I'm going to cover in this topic. Mm -hmm. So we've touched on tools and transport, but Egyptologists, mm -hmm. they seem to generally agree that in order to build the Great Pyramid in that suspected 30-year time frame, it would have had to have been one stone block placed about every five minutes. Wow. That's insane. That's a lot. What would make that possible? Lots of people. If you had lots of people doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Manpower. <laughs> Human effort. It's mundane, but that's just how it is. That's how a lot of this is. Yeah. Chiseling, transporting, building. It just takes a lot of people over many, many days. If you yeah. think about like, well, people always talk about like the number of YouTube videos that get like uploaded every second. It's like, if we were, instead of uploading YouTube videos, we were doing that, you know? We were moving like... giant blocks. Yeah, yeah, instead of uploading YouTube videos, we were building pyramids. Think about how many pyramids we'd have, guys. What are you doing? Oh no, we're, we, we, we've denied ancient aliens, but now we've turned into still this. <laughs> this kind of podcast is still. <laughs> how many people roughly do you think it took to build the Great Pyramid? Oh my god. Oh shit, that's a question. Oh my god. Um I assume maybe thousands? Yeah, it's definitely thousands. Five thousand? Up. More. More, 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 more. Ten thousand. More. Twenty thousand. It's twenty thousand. Wow. It's about twenty thousand, I think. Well, so in first century BC, a Greek historian, Herodotus, thought that it would have taken a hundred thousand people to complete because he was doing it based on the idea wow. that they worked seasonally oh. when they weren't working on other agricultural projects. Okay. But modern evidence suggests mm. that it would be maybe as few as 20,000, maybe more, that were working full time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and the reason you get that productivity boost is because they realized that if they added like ping pong tables to the break room and stuff like that, it like really increases productivity. Oh, no, no, no. They they took all of that out so that they would be working more. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> no, no. Well, <laughs> I think, you know, and Tom, you said this in the intro, the key word yeah. here is workers. They're workers. They're not slaves. They're being paid okay. to do this. They are being right? paid. And we'll mm. talk about why we know that. So Wadi El Jaf mm. on the red coast of Egypt is the site of the oldest known harbour in the world. Uh, it's about 4,500 years old. And stashed in this harbour were fragments of the oldest papyri ever found. Ooh. Uh, written during the year after the 13th cattle count of King Khufu. Wow. So okay. during the building of the Great Pyramid. These papyri are called the Diary of Murrah. 
and are essentially logbooks during the construction of the Great Pyramid, detailing resources used, logistics about limestone <gasps> transportation, and the teams doing the work. And the way it's laid out, it is literally a 4,500-year-old spreadsheet. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> because Brilliant. humans were and always will be weighed down by bureaucracy. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that'll weigh you down more than a two-ton stone block is bureaucracy. Yeah. And th there's lots of information in these papyri, but what I found interesting, given my previous preconceptions like you, Tom, was that the mm -hmm. people detailed mm -hmm. in the documents are not slaves, who would have primarily been doing agriculture, like Herodotus thought. They were highly skilled workers who had specialist roles that were listed in the papyrus. Oh, wow. Like sailors, construction workers, and administrators. <laughs> Another reason they probably weren't slaves is there were lo logs of how much food they were getting, and they were very, very well fed. Oh, nice. gosh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they did have a. So, like, maybe they also put some time together for like a ping pong table. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. They, they had work lunches. <laughs> they all, uh, went, went out to Sweet Green every so often. <laughs> Um, that's not to say the ancient Egyptians didn't have slaves. They had a lot, um, but they probably okay. weren't involved very much in building pyramids. They they did a lot of agricultural work. Got it. Okay. Okay. So this is okay. So that's the the nuance of this all. It, it's it's I don't know because my brain instantly wants to be like, oh, so they had no slaves. It's like no, they did, but like they didn't do this. And right. like, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people that can do a lot of different things. They weren't all yeah. just like pharaohs and slaves, right? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You know, you're right. So there's just one final thing I want to talk about before we wrap this up. The crop circles. Exactly. <laughs> da, 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 da. We talked a lot about the Great Pyramid specifically during this. All, most of the archaeological evidence I've talked about is from the Great Pyramid, mm -hmm. which makes sense. That's where most of it lies because it took the longest it is the biggest mm -hmm. <laughs> and probably the most yeah. impressive feat of construction. But there are 117 other pyramids. So many. <laughs> so many. And before Khufu, just before Khufu, you had Pharaoh Snefuru. And one of Snefuru's pyramids is the Red Pyramid, um, which is the third largest mm. in Egypt. And it looks much like the Great Pyramid. But before this, Snefuru built what is known as the Bent Pyramid because its lower level <gasps> is at a different angle to its top level. <sighs> Oh, that's amazing. It looks like a cake that deflated. It really does, doesn't it? You can so see where it was like, oh, we were building it at this incredible angle and it was going to be amazing. And then the angle just, it was too much and we had to make it smaller. Uh, they think that it, maybe it started to crack during construction. So they had to change <gasps> the angle of the pyramid. It's really wow. a bit janky and poorly designed. And then before that, Snefuru finished the Medum Pyramid this pyramid collapsed in ancient times. No way. The internal structure is still standing. It looks really cool. <gasps> but the straight edge outside is gone. Each of these pyramids represents a step in the evolution yeah. of the steps. Yeah. Specifically yeah. from stepped pyramid to smooth face pyramid, which they were going through during mm. this time in ancient mm. Egypt. But like you said, Tom, this is a trial and error on the way to, yeah. you know, some of the most iconic man-made structures on the planet. Because ancient Egyptians were people and people are fallible. Yeah. So, you know, for me, any insinuation that pyramids or any great ancient structures were made by anyone other than the people of that place, it diminishes that group's capacity for innovation. It ignores all of the hard work archaeologists who work on these sites have done to try and find out what those people did. And I yeah. think it also just yeah. does a disservice to like humanity as a whole. And like, yes, yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing I wanted to be like, is like, instead of fucking being like, 
those people over there couldn't do this, we could instead be like, we're all humans. It's like, man, humans yeah. like kicked ass. Like even back then, we mm -hmm. all shared the mm -hmm. human lineage of like having a human brain enough to come up with this stuff. And like, we could be focusing on that being like, isn't that cool that we all were still doing stuff like that back then, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just a shame. No, I completely agree. Yeah, that's it. That's my topic. Uh, I don't think I had to convince you guys or anyone listening to this that aliens didn't build the pyramids. But now hopefully you have the tools to debunk anyone. Yeah. Who says nice. it? Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing that even for people who don't believe that aliens did it, it's amazing how much we, me and Caroline, didn't know. We were still like, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think it's that, that realization that there was so much complexity and nuance that prevents future like like as much as like you can debunk the the specific details i feel like the best way to debunk it blanket is to show how much different stuff was happening back then yeah, yeah because totally. like the reason yeah, why yeah, we yeah. think this is because a lot of depictions we see it in media is like you know like a pharaoh with like a whip being like move yes. that block from like a cartoon yeah, yeah, yeah. or something right and but and the more you learn about every single thing that happens in these people's lives the more you're like oh yeah it's just it's just a lot of people Doing things. Well, that's it. That's why I, I mean, maybe it felt, could feel like a lot of unnecessary detail I gave today, but ultimately, like the trial and error of all the pyramids, the tiny details, yeah. the, the water and the stone and the, and the wooden posts, the ancient spreadsheet <laughs> with all the resources on it. Oh like, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, yeah. All those small things build up to a civilization that was operating yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. a civilization yeah. at the time. And was also yeah. just happened to have this massive work of construction in the process. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I found there's a great r slash history memes uh, post like because I was looking up the bent pyramid because it's wheels on the shopping cart be like and it's three pictures of like the Great Pyramid and then one of the bent pyramid. <laughs> 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 Which I love. That's great. The actual stuff that happened is is as amazing and as funny as as any conspiracy theory sometimes. Trick or treat! Oh, amazing trick or treaters! I can see that you're dressed up as um the golden toad. Obviously. Oh, oh okay. Um, and, and you're I'm Nobel and Ig Nobel laureate Andrew Geim. Obviously. Mm -hmm. Don't see how I could have ever gotten that. Well, amazing. What what niche podcast reference costumes you two have? Here, why don't you each have a factor meal? I just got in the new fall flavors. So here you can have a cranberry pecan chicken and you can have the apple Dijon pork chops. Wait, you're telling me there's a whole meal in this package? Yep, it's a fresh, never frozen meal that heats up in just two minutes. It's fast enough to get a full and balanced bite during a busy day or a busy night trick-or-treating. That's amazing, but if I'm being honest, I was kind of hoping for a sweet. Well, you're in luck because I also got a few snack add-ons this week. So here's some strawberry mascarpone cheesecake and here for Ooh. you, some red velvet pancakes. <gasps> so this is very nice, but I have to decline. I have some pretty specific dietary restrictions. Well, then why don't I just give you a factor coupon code so you can customize your own box? Whether you need it to be vegetarian, have extra protein, or just whatever you feel like, 
This part is not a joke. I have before added three nearly identical meals to my box because <laughs> I don't like change and it looked good. And no one can judge me for doing it. Nope. All you have to do is head to factormeals.com slash learn50 and use code learn50. That's learn50 to get 50% off. That's code learn50 at factormeals.com slash learn50 to get 50% off. So long now. Happy Halloween. Wow, that was nice. Yeah. Weird that Tom didn't recognize us, though. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring it up, but that was weird. So long, children. (laughs) Bye. People say not to judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree. Which is why here on Just the Zoo of Us, we judge them by so much more. We rate animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics, taking into consideration each animal's true strengths, like a pigeon's ability to tell a Monet from a Picasso or a polar bear's ability to play basketball. Guest experts like biologists, ecologists, and more join us to share their unique insight into the animal's world. Listen with friends and family of all ages on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. miscellaneous topic i wanted to talk about the Loch Ness monster specifically but also a little bit about why we love cryptid creatures so much at the end i assume you two have both heard of the Loch Ness monster can you describe what the Loch Ness monster is for people who who maybe don't know what it is it's it's a a scottish thing in Loch Ness well done tom i've been to scotland once Loch Ness is the name of the loch, right? Like that's the yeah. word, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a lake. It looks like um like an aquatic brontosaurus. It's got like a big long neck that peers out of the water. It's like a sea monster kind of shape. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there are some like actual like dinosaurs it like kind of resembles. And they call her Nessie. Like there is an ancient reptile that people base Nessie on that people are like, yeah. oh, it's one of these. Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Called a plesiosaur yeah i don't think it's a dinosaur i think it is like a type of reptile although we've talked about what it is and isn't a dinosaur before you know (laughs) um it also feels like it should be a reasonably like a relatively local legend being like sighted in the loch ness specifically rather than like anywhere else which is this large freshwater loch in the scottish highlands but Nessie has spread far and wide, being included in cinematic masterpieces like Twilight. We all know Oh my god, I was about right. to say sorry, whenever what? I whenever sorry, I think what? about When does that happen? Can I do it? <laughs> okay. Yeah, do it. <laughs> so you haven't what? seen it yet, but basic spoilers for fucking uh, <laughs> Twilight Dawn. Five? Bella has a child in the last film and the child's name is Renesme. And then Jacob nicknames the baby Nessie. And then when when <laughs> Bella, Bella wakes up, like, you named our daughter after the exact yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she like attacks him. That's it. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. I thought there was some scene that they added where like they visit the Loch Ness monster and they're like, oh yeah, she's real and a friend no. of ours. <laughs> that would be wild, wouldn't it? <laughs> But yeah, when I think of the Loch Ness Monster, I very much am like, this should be something that's like Scottish or maybe British you know at most. That is, a, that is a good point. Yeah. And it has just become like this really, really popular cryptid creature. And I freaking love it for that. Even before the internet, you know, because I think of 
I know a lot of cryptids. Yeah, from, totally, totally. I think about like Mothman, who is very specific yes. to yeah, yeah, like yeah. a part of America. And I know that one because of the internet, not because that legend has like gone yeah. beyond borders in any other way. But Loch Ness was like before that, right? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about that in a little bit because the story behind how it became so popular, I think is really, really interesting. So I want to talk about Loch Ness and the Loch Ness Monster. She's one of my favorites. I love her so much. So I wanted to talk about her on the Halloween special, especially. Now I've used <laughs> the word cryptid a lot so far. Mm-hmm. Can either of you just tell me like a definition of what a cryptid creature is? Like a mythological. Mythological's not like feels wrong because that's like mythological is like a yeah a griffin or something. Dragons. Yeah, Dragon. yeah, 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 yeah. It's like an animal or a being that people claim is real but there is no solid evidence for would be great definition yeah you're pretty much right the really simple definition is an animal whose existence or survival is disputed or unsubstantiated i was gonna say animals like the dodo (laughs) (laughs) yeah sure i guess to some random what was it spanish group the dodo could have been a cryptid creature to them at some point i like this was this was a as much as we joke about cryptids, I'm sure back then there were cryptids that like the dodo turned out to actually be real things occasionally. Well, yeah. And I was looking through some lists include animals like the thylacine, which we know was a real animal. Uh, and like there are questions about what's a thylacine? It's an extinct big cat. It's known as the Tasmanian tiger. That's the one. It's like a striped dog cat. Yeah. One example I kind of have is, so St. George, who is the patron saint of England, he's often depicted as like on a horse stabbing, like killing a dragon. I have a ring with that on, actually. Wow. And what they think, what scholars think, is that the story could go that he went to, he like killed an alligator and he came back and was like, I killed this massive scaly beast with like, you know, over massively over-exaggerated what he had seen, but might have gone <laughs> and killed an alligator. And then, uh, I mean, those things are frightening, yeah. which which I guess makes them a, a, a fake cryptid and a real animal. And, and, and we're talking about real cryptids and fake animals. Yeah. So there are so many different examples. There's like Yetis, Bigfoot, Chupacabra. The Loveland Frog is one of my other favorite ones. I don't know this one. Gonna, if you hadn't mentioned that, I was going to I make sure to. you knew about it. I had it. to. Yeah, uh, of course. For, Ella, it's a giant four-foot frog spotted in Loveland, Ohio. Okay. Which I just think is great. Why not? Uh, And just so, so many more. Every culture has its own cryptid and lots of people are fascinated by them. So much so that people study these creatures quite intensely. Cryptozoology is the study of cryptids, a term that has been possibly floating around since the 1940s, although different sources state the existence of this term. Yeah, cryptozoologists. I listen to this podcast occasionally, I listen to this podcast called Last Podcast on the Left, which where they talk about like mm. murder and horror and, and yeah. to talk about cryptids Ooh, too. And one yeah, of the yeah, hosts yeah. of that podcast has done like an insanely long and expensive cryptozoology course to become like an accredited <gasps> cryptozoologist. That's amazing. <laughs> they like teach you how, like all about the different cryptids and they like how to hunt them and stuff. It's so funny. No way. That's... From like Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's actually yeah, it's a Stanford course. So it's pretty, pretty big. But yeah, cryptozoology is 
it's not a formally recognized study, oh, right. but a lot of people do get really into it. And actually the term cryptid, we do know when that term first originated. Uh, according to the Museum of Cryptozoology, in the summer of 1983, there was an issue of the newsletter for the International Society. 1983? Yeah, 1983. That's way more. I, obviously the concept is older, but I didn't realize, well, yeah. I, I assumed yeah. the word would mm. be older. Yeah, so cryptozoology came first, then the term cryptid came afterwards. And this was in the really? International Society oh. of Cryptozoology, a now defunct organization where a cryptozoologist, John E. Wall, introduced the term cryptid to describe animals of interest to cryptozoologists, which I thought was just interesting. Huh. Um, but by the end of the 1990s, the term cryptid was showing up in dictionaries. They made it. Of course, the Loch Ness Monster has been cited way before the term cryptid right. yeah. was a term. Before it was cool. Absolutely. When do you think the first sighting of the Loch Ness Monster was? Ooh, I'll guess like 1600s, 1700s. You're saying 1600s, 1700s? Ella, what do you think? Ancient Egypt. <laughs> Swimming down the Nile. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, well, that's the Loch Ness Monster. And then there's another guy there. He's like, what's Loch Ness? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, oh, dude, dude, you gotta go sometime. You gotta try Iron Brew. It's so good. <laughs> oh, that really tickled me. But Ella, <laughs> you're not like no crazy fucking way. No off. fucking way. No, are you actually kidding me? What? When? One of the earliest reports of some sort of monster in Loch Ness was in the sixth century. Whoa! Oh, so my around God. 560 Whoa. AD. Uh, and it's it's a great story that I'm going to share with you now because I did not know any of this and it is That's it's way kind of older. a wild story. Yeah. So one of the first sightings of Loch Ness was by an Irish monk who we now refer to as Saint Columba. They were a monk at the time, they've become a saint since then. Um, so Saint Columba was an Irish abbot, missionary and scholar who helped spread Christianity across Scotland. Yay! Um, the story goes... <laughs> The story goes that Columba was staying in the land of the Picts or a Pictish kingdom. The Picts were a group of people who lived in Scotland before mm. Vikings came into the area. So oh. early Middle Ages. So according to the National Catholic Register, this is how the story goes. While standing upon the bank of the River Ness, which flows out of Loch Ness in northern Scotland... Columba contemplated the best way to cross to the other side. Whilst he was considering this problem, he came across a heathenish Pict who was busy burying a friend who had been attacked by an enormous water beast while swimming <sighs> in the river. Columba then laid his staff across the man's chest and miraculously, the man stood up. Okay, okay. Columba <laughs> ordered one of his mates then, who was a fellow monk who was travelling with him across Scotland, to swim across the lake. And apparently, without any hesitation, this guy stood Stripped off his tunic and immediately jumped into the water. Because why would you after seeing somebody being attacked by a giant monster, right? Well, he's got a recovery staff that probably has like a few more spell slots in it left. <laughs> <laughs> the monster then surfaced and raced towards the hapless monk, eager for a bite. Everyone on the shore cried, hoping to warn the monk of his impending doom. However, Columba was unmoved. Instead, the saint he stepped cast forward firebolt. boldly. <laughs> no, it's even better than Not that. Not on a water animal. 
Tom. God. You're right. Probably like Eldritch Blast. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like Sleet Storm or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, look, no, you'd use you'd use Lightning Bolt, obviously. Yeah. Although, would mm-hmm. he wait? Mm-hmm. He might just use a cantrip, honestly, at this point. It's one of those, like, is this worth it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what he actually did was he was making the sign of a cross and invoking the name of the Lord. Ah, holy damage. Yeah, right. Uh, okay, we're joking, but this is actually... It's, it's, it's holy so smite. crazy. <laughs> just, just really quickly, it's a monk, so actually he's best with unarmed attacks and not so much I fucking spells. hate us yeah. so much. I hate us so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but maybe he's so, dual classing. I don't know, multi-classing, so he can get some of these oh spells. yeah maybe maybe this sucks Should i just I carry on us? sipping my tea whilst you too sorry you caroline sorry to, this like, is just such a good story <laughs> can't get it out of us can't get it out of us okay so he calls on god to protect his friend he does and he shouts out something along the lines of you will go no further do not touch that man leave at <gasps> you once shall not pass. you shall not pass fucking really right you will go no further wow that's very derivative <laughs> <laughs> we need to this is this is big misc energy i love this this makes me so happy <laughs> apparently then the monster that was super close to the monk at this point stopped immediately and fled the scene terrified <laughs> i'll get you one day <laughs> The person who wrote this down was somebody called Admanan, who was the person who wrote this story down about 100 years after its events were supposed to have taken place. 100, 100 years, years later. God. Yeah, yeah. Right. so in the 7th century. But as Admanan says, the monster moved more quickly than if it had been pulled back with ropes. Uh, so the monster quickly swims away and the man paddles back to safety on the shore again. It, it, there's just one tiny little Christian okay. bit at the end of it, unfortunately, oh, which is the pics converted on the spot right. being baptized oh. in the very waters of the river Ness. And there is some <gasps> pieces of art depicting this event, which wow. are very beautiful and very interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So whilst this was or one of the earliest examples, some picts, like they did stone carving and some of those stone carvings supposedly depict a monster in the lock. I couldn't find any direct sources to quote that. So that's a very pinch of salt. This this story is very heavily quoted, though, and is really, really interesting. So funny. But whilst this is the earliest example There aren't a whole load of eyewitness testimonies between then and like the 18-1900s. It all sort of stays pretty quiet. And the majority of sightings of the Loch Ness Monster have happened over the last 200 years. So there's been a plethora of supposed sightings, but it all ramped up in the 1900s especially. And there's a really Mm. simple Mm -hmm. reason as to why it all started to ramp up then. So a road was finished next to the Loch Ness. to the lake. Yeah, people could go to the lake or the lock and it offered an unobstructed view of the lake, basically. So in April of 1933, a couple saw an enormous animal, which they compared to a dragon or a prehistoric monster. And after it had crossed their path, it disappeared into the water. So yeah, this incident, along with a few other sightings, was reported in a Scottish newspaper, along with following sightings, all of these things. But following on from this, the Loch Ness Monster became part of more popular culture in January of 1934, where Nessie featured in the short story The Monster of the Loch by William Mm. J. Mackin and in a film in 1934 titled The Secret of the Loch. So it's starting to enter like the cultural zeitgeist at the time. With the increase in media attention, there also came an increase in hoaxes around the time. And Mm -hmm. I really love Mm -hmm. this stuff. This is where some very famous photographs were taken as well. Before I get to that, though, 
I want to talk about one of my favorite hoaxes of the Loch Ness Monster being cited in some capacity. According to the New York Times in 1933, the Daily Mail in 1933 commissioned a man named Marmaduke Wetherill. Uh, this man was a filmmaker and a self-styled big game hunter. So the Daily Mail hired him to track down the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> Fucking hell. Wetherill found on the Loch's beach a couple of newly laid footprints that suggested to his experienced stalker's eye a very powerful, soft-footed animal about 20 feet long. He then took plastic casts of these footprints and sent them to the Natural History Museum for further analysis. <laughs> and they were like, please stop, please leave us stop. alone, God. <laughs> so what they found was that the prints were all completely identical, including like no differences between like maybe a left foot or a right foot, hind legs, anything. What they actually found was that these prints came from a hippo leg umbrella. So an umbrella with a <gasps> stuffed hippo leg on the end of it, which had then been <laughs> pressed into the mud to create oh these footprints. Oh my prints. God. Hippo leg umbrella. Incredible. Incredible. That's my sleeper agent activation word. <laughs> <laughs> hippo leg umbrella. <laughs> 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 This leads me to possibly the most famous hoax, which... Is this the photograph? That famous photograph? Yeah, I can see the image in my mind. Let me tell you all about it, because this is a great... So this is called the Surgeon's Photograph. It was taken in 1934, and oh, wow, it's that's where really, really. a lot of people thought that it became, like was an ancient reptile of some sort, like a plesiosaur, and it was photographed by Robert Wilson. A well-respected London gynaecologist who was driving along the lock when a companion of his uh, glanced down into the water and shouted, My God, it's a monster, which I think is lovely. The detail of him being a gynaecologist makes it so much funnier for some reason. Yeah, I don't really. know why. <laughs> I think it gets even better when you have the context of he was specifically chosen to take that photo because he was well-respected in the medical field. So people believed that he would be believed more than if somebody else took that photo, basically. Okay. Which okay. I think is really interesting. So obviously this photo isn't of the Loch Ness Monster. It was actually made by our friend Marmaduke Wetherill once again. <gasps> again? And God again. damn Marmaduke. And somebody else called <laughs> Christian Spurling. <laughs> They're the real cryptid. Marmaduke is the real cryptid here. <laughs> So yeah, Wetherill was essentially throwing a bit of hissy fit that the Natural History Museum rejected his casts. <laughs> so he, with the help of Sperling, made a model using a toy submarine and layers of wood and plastic to make the head of this monster. Okay. Um, different sources speculate on Wilson's involvement, but it's widely thought that he was brought in specifically to photograph this because of his reputation. They thought that he would be believed. This hoax wasn't revealed until the 1990s when Sperling confessed that he had oh. helped do this. So I think it was believed that it was a hoax, but they weren't entirely sure yeah. like, what the details were. Was as he Sperling like on his deathbed and he yeah. was like, I must confess. <laughs> There's a truth. And oh, I, lo I love the idea. He's like, the Nessie photo, it's not real. And everyone's like, yeah, we, we know. We know. We know. Yeah, wait, 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 hold on. <laughs> So yeah, despite all of the hoaxes along the way, people still love the idea that there's a monster in the lock. 
Uh, since its first sighting in the 6th century, there's been over 1,150 sightings, with the majority of them happening over the last 200 years. There is a website that you can visit that documents all of these sightings. But with all of this growing interest in the Loch Ness and the supposed monster in it, so came a growing interest in searching the lake for the monster. And with improving technology, especially in the 60s, searching the lock became easier than ever. My absolute favourite research that was done here, purely because of its name, is the Nessie Seri Independent Research. Nice. <sighs> real, real good. Uh, this started in 1991 and apparently is still being conducted now. <sighs> it's being run by a man named Steve Feltham who founded this research and he lives in a converted mobile library just keeping an eye out with his binoculars on the lock. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, Steve funds his research with public donations and by selling handcrafted models of the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, <laughs> to date, his findings have proved inconclusive. Darn. It's kind of like a bit wholesome, I suppose. Isn't like, that kind it's not of sweet? Like, yeah. like, it's not harming anyone. <laughs> no, I completely agree with that. There has also been some like legitimately interesting work done in the late in the lock, especially using technology like eDNA. Environmental DNA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Ella, do you wanna tell us what that is? It's DNA in the environment, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much spot on there. <laughs> So DNA that animals leave behind in their environment through uh, pooping, okay. peeing, dying, etc. The three great joys in life. <laughs> yeah, you know, the really important, the milestones that you hit. You pee, you poop, you die. That's <laughs> <laughs> In all seriousness, this technology is used quite a lot in the world of biodiversity and conservation. It's a really useful tool to mm. learn about what species might be present in a certain environment. Yeah. I learned about it a lot when I was learning about like fish ecology. They poop, they pee, they do all of those things. Mm -hmm. And you can mm -hmm. collect samples and have a look at what's in there. It's not great yeah. for telling you how many of a species are in there, or even if that species is still living there or was mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. passing through. But it is a really, really useful tool. So in May of 2018, geneticist wow. Professor Neil Gemmel from the University of Otago, New Zealand, embarked on a project to collect and test genetic traces of animals in the loch and hoped to figure out if there was a Loch Ness monster or not. At first, Gemmel said that he was worried about an exhaustive investigation into the loch and that it might be a bit silly. But apparently <laughs> he then talked to his nine-year-old son who told his friends who thought that the project was, and I quote, awesome. So after, <laughs> see <laughs> after seeing that his kids were so fascinated, Gemmel claims that he realised that taking a serious scientific look at the lock could stir up public interest in the technique. I was going to say, and yeah, talking about biodiversity. Yeah. So yeah, really, really interesting stuff. Do you want to guess what Gemmel found? Uh, fish. Yeah. yeah, you're not wrong. He certainly didn't find any prehistoric reptiles. He did find the DNA of over 3,000 species, which is wild. Interesting, yeah. Gemmel goes on to describe what he found. He said that there was a significant amount of eel DNA. Eels are very plentiful okay. in Loch Ness, with eel DNA found pretty much at every location sampled. He goes on to say, so, are they giant eels? Well... 
our data doesn't reveal their size, but the sheer quantity of the materials says that we can't discount the possibility that there may be giant eels in Loch Ness. Therefore, we can't discount the possibility that what people see and believe is the Loch Ness Monster might be a giant oh. eel. Okay, how giant? Well, is he? <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing with that. So nobody was shocked by learning about there being eels in the lock. This was pretty common knowledge. Mm, mm. The idea that it could be a giant eel has been disputed with the largest European eel. That's the type of eel that's in Loch Ness only mm. being about 5.38 kilograms. So not yeah, very big. So. You know what it is? It could weigh that much, but it's actually really long and thin. Mm. Sure. Yeah. It's like a big really, really, Yeah. <laughs> but it, it certainly could explain a lot of people's sightings of seeing a creature with a long neck or seeing mm, animals yeah. like that moving around. It could very easily explain some of it. In the murky I guess water. So. This doesn't stop people from wanting to believe. In fact, after Gamel's announcement, British Prime Minister at the time, Boris Johnson, said that he yearns to believe <laughs> in the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, the Prime Minister at the time said that he wanted the mythical creature to be real when he was a child, adding... Part of me still does. I mean, that explains his policy decisions of acting like a child. Doesn't it, just? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Finishing off all of this, folklorist Michael Merger and Claude Gannon also highlight in their 1988 book, Lake Monsters Traditions, a cross-cultural analysis that a major part of belief in cryptids comes from cultural settings of those observing and sharing their encounters. So... Big, mm. deep, ominous lakes are imagined in several European cultures to be inhabited by monsters. I think the existence of Nessie or the stories around her is basically inevitable. Like there's this innate fear, curiosity and imagination in all of us mm. paired with our mm. love of storytelling and our desire to mm. feel seen and part of a community in some way mm. means that stories like the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, etc., we're always going to be created and it's a very human thing to engage with. And I think that's really cool, as long as you're not being a dick about it. I also want to highlight something that I found really interesting whilst researching this, that there seems to be a real relationship between cryptids <gasps> and the queer community in yes! some way, which I think is really interesting. I was really hoping you would talk <laughs> about this. I do this. not know this. This is, and I, I found one really comprehensive like article on it and I was just like oh my god this is great there's a person called Sam Wall who's a blogger who interviewed a lot of their fellow bloggers that are within the queer community and wrote a really really interesting article on this which is in the show notes so he goes on to say for starters cryptids are just weird and in weird spaces, <laughs> yeah. non-normative orientations and identities feel less stigmatized. There's also a sentiment that this person heard from multiple interviewees and have heard elsewhere as a queer advocate. Queer people have their experiences and existence denied all of the time. One blogger said that <laughs> collecting evidence and defending the existence of cryptids, whether it's in a serious or in a joking way, is doing for others what they wish they could have done for themselves. Which I think Aww. is really nice sentiment there the, there was an article that i came across about how the babadook has become like a queer icon oh, which is very yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. i think it's a similar there's a great quote from this the babadook one where they go its existence is defiance and it seeks to break down the borders of acceptability and establishment <laughs> but i have a i have a pet theory of another reason why cryptids are so staying in pu public culture and especially in tumblr culture is because oh, yeah. it is a lore that we all share that isn't mm -hmm. a religious 
or B, owned by a fucking IP. Oh, yeah, yeah that's yeah. It's, it's, it's It's a public lore that we all get to share that mm -hmm. you can write mm -hmm. about that you can that you can like you can be like I love the Mothman and you're not going to find out that like Mothman author turns out to be a huge racist or something like that right yeah, like and, yeah, and yeah. you can like publish a book that is about the Mothman and and unlike the Avengers no one's going to like cease and desist you but like the Avengers everyone can be familiar with the lore and like the rules Tumblr culture fan culture yeah. Yeah. you can see it in what we call Tumblr sexy men where they take <laughs> specific characters yep. which are not sexy and make them really sexy for some reason like that yeah. triangle guy from that one cartoon <laughs> gravity falls yes no, you've yes. all seen this yes. he's yeah, a tumble yeah. sexy man sans from undertale and it's like i know that i'm sure people are making cryptid sexy on tumble by the way as well that's oh, what i mean oh, it's, like, it's like it's like just like yeah like it's like queer mythology it's like your own yeah people just yeah. love to yeah. <laughs> Just love to write stuff. They like to. You can add. You can put whatever you want on yes, it. You can yeah. put whatever yeah, you want on yeah. it. It's it's like a public lore, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking at an article here that's saying like queer people are often portrayed as the villain yeah, um, or, or they feel yeah, that yeah. way, and so you can kind of reclaim this thing that is seen as villainous. Yeah. And and I get that because when I think of cryptid, I think a lot of people who hunt like cryptid hunters mm. are like, see them as like horrible, scary things in the dark. But I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like <gasps> yeah. when I think of Bigfoot, I'm like, oh, that big cool guy who goes around. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, the, that, that like reclaiming is also like, there's, I feel like uh, there's tons of stories about stuff like that where like they turn out to be nice or even turn out to be like found family and stuff like that, which is yes. such a like, you yeah, know, yeah, like queer yeah. trope. So it's, it's very, uh, it's just, uh, it's so interesting. It's so, it's so it's so fun. Uh, uh, that's the sound <laughs> that the monster makes in the Grudge movie. That's the end. That's spooky oh, for you. Okay. It's review corner. <laughs> Yay! Oh, this review is coming from inside the TV. Is reaching out. Is that the Grudge? Is that, that that's the ring? That's the ring. <laughs> Are you? Do you promise that this review corner isn't going to make us cry this time? I'm worried it might make you scream. Ah, <laughs> this comes stupid. from Alex Anstein, Alexandstein, but they say right. science. Yeah. <laughs> I picked up this podcast recently because I heard an ad for it on another Max Fun podcast and ended up loving it a bunch. It's my new favorite comfort podcast. Yeah. And it's like a warm hug to the part of my brain that wants to continuously aggregate knowledge. <laughs> I love hearing queer scientists, parentheses, and token straight scientist friend talk actually <laughs> about, about things. And they remind me of my own friends. One thing I will say is that it's not humans that are the problem with regard to environmental issues is actually all the colonialism and capitalism as said in the early halloween themed episode the scariest horror story of all is indeed capitalism <gasps> parentheses ghost voice Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and they go but i assure everyone that the podcast is still very comforting even when they get to the heavier topics Aww. Aww. thank you so that's much so that's a, that was a perfectly picked review tom thank you so much for that i'm, I'm glad that people don't mind us talking about capitalism so much because it will happen sometimes <laughs> we're not, we're not gonna that's not stop. our fault that's capitalism's yeah. fault yeah, yeah. that's how it works do we have any spooky plugs or 
terrifying shout outs letslearnevything.com it's the spookiest website on the internet if by spooky you mean you can find our discord server as well as all the links to our socials then yes the spookiest Ella, I agree. Discord server. <laughs> Ooh, let us know your favorite cryptids let us <gasps> yes, know your favorite do. pyramids that is my favorite Goosebump book. <laughs> uh, and also, I think we have a I Made Something channel. And let us know your costumes for uh Oh my goodness, yes! <gasps> so, today, we learned about Goosebumps and why we get them and what that can tell us about how we can look at the science of fear and the questions that are still unanswered about our own bodies. Ooh. And also the joys of subjecting people to horrible sounds. Uh, <laughs> we learned about ancient aliens that existed when people started writing books about aliens. And, <laughs> and all of the trials and errors and successes that actually happened that make the ancient Egyptian people people. Uh, and how cool that is and how proud we should be of that. And we learned about the Loch Ness Monster and the wild origin story of it and why it still exists to this day and how cryptids can be a source of joy and comfort and silliness and weirdness yeah. in this spookiest time of the year. And you can join us next time where we will learn about <gasps> everything. Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lunt, and Caroline Roper, with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunt. As always, Caroline, let me know if you just want like a... Oh, I will. Yeah. Oh, exciting. Oh. Uh, uh. I wish I'd known about this beforehand so I could have Sorry. planned to have it in, but I forgive you on this occasion, Tom, but next year I want full spooky sounds. I can put yeah. stuff in, in post, baby. <laughs> oh, Let me know. That's so true. <laughs> Could I have some alien music? Like, beep, Ooh, yeah. That, you know. I'll, put some, I'll put some like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just imagine Caroline's like, so in the, when we first learned about cryptids and then Tom just put in the sound of a thousand keys jangling, just like this, like impossibly complex demand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sound of two cars crashing into each other. And then uh, a foghorn, please. <laughs> a a foghorn passing underneath a helicopter and they're both inside of a music hall. <laughs> <laughs> MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported